0: Hello and welcome to Wellbeing, I'm Dr. Virginia Reed, and we're going to be discussing mind matters as they certainly do with Dr. Norman Deutsch, psychoanalyst, psychiatrist and researcher in the fascinating science of neuroplasticity. Welcome Dr. Deutsch.
1: Thanks for having me, it's great to be here.
0: We were actually just discussing the Goldilocks zone. Yes, not too hard, not too soft, just right. <laughs> and that's what our brain can create, right?
1: Uh Yes. That's that's a moderate statement. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: The view we had of the brain was, in some ways, a far too rigid one, because we saw it as like a machine with parts, each part performing a single mental function in a single location. And that meant that if the part broke or didn't develop properly, you would be stuck with it for the rest of your life, in all cases necessarily. So I'm not trying to replace an overly rigid view of the brain with an equally extreme plastic view of the brain, which implies it's infinitely malleable, but rather to just correct our view and move it closer to what it really is. So not too hard, not too soft, not too rigid, uh, not too flexible.
0: So what was the thinking, um, that mechanistic view of the brain came in probably with Descartes, etc., about 400 years ago, Yeah.
1: Yes. Well, it came in with Galileo, actually, in the rise of modern science. Before Galileo, um, we had a very Greek view of nature, which saw all of nature as a vast living organism. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't really a strong separation between mind and brain. Um, uh, Let me explain. Aristotle thought that the soul was a kind of a product of the body, if you will. It wasn't radically separate from it. And... We got the, the Greek view of nature, saw anything that was alive, anything was moving was thought to be alive, and anything that seemed to be orderly was thought to be intelligent. And the entire cosmos was thought in some respects to be like this vast living organism. And so Socrates was able to um, they weren't let's say they didn't because they didn't have this mechanistic view that modern science gave rise to. They weren't opposed to plasticity in principle, and Socrates in the Republic said that he thought that you could actually exercise and improve the organ of thought the way gymnasts would uh, exercise their muscles. Now, when Galileo um, took this child's telescope and aimed it at the heavens and described the movement of the heavenly bodies, we, we entered the modern scientific mechanical uh, view of nature. Um, the heavenly bodies were seen as matter. Matter was not seen to be alive. And it was in motion because of these mechanical laws of motion. And people started to think of the entire universe as this um, cosmic clock. That's what they called it. And soon scientists were so excited by what Galileo did that we started to think of the organs inside our bodies um, as like machines They were mechanical, and the, the first great accomplishment of this new mechanistic biology was William Harvey explaining the circulation of the blood um, mm. as a function of the heart, which was like a pump with vessels. So this mechanistic biology began, began very brilliantly, and then Descartes said that the nervous system was very much like a pump with currents going up what he thought were hollowed neural tubes. And so this machine metaphor for the brain, um, really took hold of neuroscience, and we also couldn't see the change happening in the brain because it was microscopic. And so it became the clinical lore, mainstream medical clinical lore, that if you 're born, for instance, with a learning disorder there's nothing you can do about it because machines you know can't alter their their parts that way. The only way ch- machines change is to wear out. It meant that if you were aging, and you wanted to preserve an aging brain, that was pointless because, again, um, your, machine, your machine brain would, would wear out. It wouldn't really respond to stimulation. It meant if you had a trauma or a stroke, by definition, there was nothing you could do. Well, we now know that there are some learning disorders which can actually be completely cured. Um, we can certainly help people with the commonest kind of stroke, uh, problems moving uh, their arms and legs, Um, and brain exercises have now been shown uh, to reverse age-related cognitive decline, which is something most of us start to uh, manifest in our 40s and 50s. So um, this is a very, very big correction. I believe it's the most important change in our understanding of the human brain in 400
0: years, in fact. And when did it begin? Well,
1: it's funny, you should ask that. You know, there um, there were hints of it Fairly early on, as I intimated with the Greeks, the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau asserted that he he believed that experience reorganizes the brain. So he was writing in the 1700s, and shortly after he died, an experiment was done um, that seemed to have stemmed from his work, where they took animals, uh, Malacharn, who was an Italian expert in part of the brain, took animals that were virtually identical, and raised half of them in a very stimulating, enriched environment, and the other half in, a, in a, a more modest one. And then he sacrificed the animals, looked at their brains, and actually he saw that the brains of the animals raised in the more enriched environment were bigger. Um, but people just didn't really believe that. <laughs> but then we had experiments in the, in the 60s in, in the United States, which replicated that many, many, many times over uh with uh, better equipment and of course in my book I write about some of these pioneers who started to show a lot of brain plasticity in the very late 60s early 70s they were all mavericks they were all disbelieved but now it is a central uh um it's seen as a fact and not a theory it's the experiment is it shows that the brain can uh, it is plastic has been replicated really thousands of times. Well, I should define plasticity though for your
0: listeners. <laughs> I'm uh, just about plasticity to ask you is that. <laughs> just
1: The property of the brain that allows it to change its structure and its function in response to mental experience. So that could be mm-hmm. sensing and perceiving, it could be thinking, it can be imagining, and of course it's acting in the world. And each time we do these activities at a microscopic level, we change the connections inside our brain, and in fact, the way it works is quite phenomenal. The Nobel Prize in the year 2000 went to Dr. Eric Kandel, a psychiatrist and lab researcher, who was able to show in a series of just brilliant experiments that when some kind of mental experience or learning occurs, um, genes inside the nerve cells are turned on to make new proteins to then increase the number of connections between... Nerve cells in a group to you know to form a circuit. So this notion that our circuits are hardwired uh, is actually spectacularly wrong. Um, it's not that there aren't certain things that are genetically uh, determined, but the circuits are not one of those things. The Circuits work by by changing themselves. In fact,
0: you're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reed, and I'm discussing neuroplasticity with Dr. Norman Deutsch. So you your recently written a book haven't you which really is a series of examples of specific cases in which people have used this knowledge to create therapies that work yeah
1: the brain that changes itself is a story of visits i made to people who were working at the you know really the forefront of neuroscience who had already helped people restructure their brain and it's told through stories to make it accessible to people secretly it's a science textbook but nobody picks that up because I bury it in the story so that you, you'll come away with a really updated picture of the human brain and you don't have to be intimidated by that because it's very much in these stories of people blind people who learned how to see people with unusual disabilities strokes brain traumas chronic neuropathic pain of certain kinds of depressions and traumas, um, learning disorders. There's a lot on that. And I have the story of an... Uh, at the other end of the spectrum uh, of uh, a man, Stanley Karansky, was 89 years old when I spoke with him, who was doing um, a very, very uh, powerful program developed by a company called Posit Science, which is really put together by one of the leading neuroplastic scientists Dr. Michael Merzenek, and Stanley Karansky was a man who, uh, you know, he'd lived a very full life. He was a medic at D-Day. He worked as a physician until he was uh, 70 years old. Hmm. He was an anesthesiologist. He retired, then he went back to work, hmm. and he worked, uh, he retrained himself when he, in his 70s, become a family doctor, hmm. worked till he was in his 80s, did everything right um, to preserve his brain. He Exercise, mild cardiovascular exercise, um, did very, very light weights to preserve his muscle mass, had many hobbies to keep himself stimulated, traveled all over the world in his 80s, I think. He went to the North Pole, if I recall, <laughs> in his 80s. I mean, he just did it all. But even Stanley Karansky, when he was 89, noticed that Words started to fail him at Mm -hmm. parties. He couldn't remember names. He was becoming less talkative, socially withdrawn. His concentration wasn't as good as it had been. His driving wasn't as good as it had been. He was showing classic signs of age-related cognitive decline. Mm. Um, And what age-related cognitive decline is about is as our brains get older, um, in part because we haven't given them enough stimulation The kind of stimulation that Mm. you give the brain when you, for instance, want to learn a foreign language, that kind of intensity.
0: Mm, You discuss that in the book, don't you, the types of of, of stimulation, because there are brain stimulants that are not so good for a brain.
1: Yeah, well, no, these are ones that are good for it. Great. Your brain is far more likely to deteriorate and waste away from lack of intense stimulation than it is to wear out from overly intense stimulation in most cases. I'm not talking here about painful stress or loss, but um, there's not that much danger of under-stimulating your brain. So most of us, by the time we're hit middle age, haven't done something like prepare a French vocabulary for a test, that kind of concentration for, you know, many, many decades. And it's a use-it-or-lose-it brain. That's what Socrates guessed at uh, all the way back then. And so we start that part of the brain that consolidates new connections forming in inside it. It's called the nucleus basalis, has been understimulated for decades, and um, what Stanley Korsky was able to do using this posit science program, basically using it about an hour a day, five days a week for about six weeks, was to reverse all the symptoms, all of them, uh, just with the brain training exercise, and. A young person's brain remembers just about everything it's exposed to, and a baby's brain can remember just about everything or respond to it, notice it, you know, without effort. Mm. That's why there's such good company. They mm. laugh at all our jokes or whatever we do. They, they they pick it up. They learn words quickly. But an older person's brain loses that, and it's very, very much like, a you know, an old analog radio that's slightly off the channel. It's not getting the signals very clearly. It's Their signals are noisy, and they don't register well. So this new approach to brain exercise, and it's just one of many different approaches, but it's one I I, I think is very successful, actually tunes up the brain. Imagine your brain was sort of like a piano. It it needs to be tuned so that it can make sharp, crisp signals. So that's one example, and that kind of program actually has turned out to, um, they've done some very good studies of that, and the average person can turn their memory clock back 10 years. They can function the way they, after six weeks, you know, an eighty-year-old can function like a seventy-year-old, and some of the group can actually function the way they did twenty-five years earlier.
0: Mm, so it's 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 still dependent partly on the individual.
1: Yeah, it is dependent partly on the individual.
0: So we know a uh, bit about this science, but we don't know a lot about this science. Or well, the more we know, the more we realise we don't know.
1: Well, I wouldn't say that. I would say that um, we know some. We've had some pretty significant breakthroughs already. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we know how to drive change. I mean, we know how in many situations to cure learning disorders. This is not widely available yet because these are mm. recent discoveries. Mm. But um in many situations now, we know how to take children who don't really have certain processing areas and build them up. Um, we know how to take people who have had a common kind of stroke where they can't move their right arm. And in something like, you know, over 75% of cases get, get them doing it, and then we, we also know when we put them in a brain scan before and after this intervention that new areas of the brain are taking over the lost functions.
0: Mm, I think that's an important concept to get across to the listeners. Would you mind just describing that for us, how that happens? Well,
1: I'll, I'll tell you a story. I'll just tell you maybe Great. a story. And um, one of the people I... Um, describe in the books Dr. Michael Bernstein, and he was in his mid-50s, in the prime of life. He was an eye surgeon, so he made his living operating inside the eyeball with uh, microscopic kinds of uh, ways of viewing the eyeball and very, very small tool, fine motor skills, and he was a classically trained pianist and tennis buff, and one day when he was playing tennis, he noticed his balance was off, and he had poor coordination, and it turned out that he had a, a very significant stroke. And one side of his body was not functioning at all. And he went for the usual kinds of rehabilitation. And at the end of the six weeks, which is what we usually used to give and still give in most places, because we didn't really believe that you could um, radically retrain the brain. We just sort of were waiting for all the swelling and inflammation to pass. At the end of his six weeks, he wasn't much better. But he happened, by a stroke of luck, to live in <laughs> Birmingham, Alabama, where Dr. Edward Taub had pioneered this new treatment. What Taub had figured out working with monkeys was the following, that after some severe neurologic insult, like a stroke, um, the person, if they can't move their right hand, will try on a number of times to do so. And they will fail. And then their brain will learn it doesn't work. And so they'll start using their unaffected hand, their good hand, And now you know it's a use-it-or-lose-it brain, so what do you imagine happens? Well, the unaffected hand gets marginally better, but if there was any hope for the affected arm, because you're not using it, whatever is left is going to waste away, for sure. Now, the reason um, you can't move it turns out to be a little more complicated than you think. It's there are two things happening. First of all, brain cells died that processed the movement of that arm, for sure. And that's a reason why it couldn't move. But the other thing is, after a stroke, your brain goes into a kind of shock-like situation. People have sometimes heard the phrase spinal shock. Well, there's something like brain shock that happens after any kind of brain trauma. And so it shuts the parts of the brain down in, in a way probably to try and protect it. and. Then you try to use your hand in the midst of the brain shock, and then you get what Taub calls it, this learned non-use. So he did an experiment originally with monkeys, but now we do it with human beings all the time in, uh, uh, or not all the time, but he, he does it all the time in, in stroke patients. So it, it's, it's this. You take the person and you put their good hand in a sling or a cast so they cannot use it. And then you incrementally train the affected arm. And what Taub can do, usually in about two weeks of very, very intensive work, it's, it's, it's exhausting for the patient, mm, by the way. Because there really are regrowing new connections, mm. is they can take people who uh, come in uh, in pretty bad shape in terms of inability to move their hands and get them from being totally uh, dependent on others to being independent in many cases. Um, with this incremental training, and the secret is this twofold intervention of not allowing them to use their good hand, mm-hmm. and incrementally, very very incrementally, retraining it from the very beginning. The new movement is not quite as graceful as the old because mm-hmm. it's being done by you know brain cells that are in mm-hmm. different parts of the brain. But there are many many different examples of that through, throughout my book
0: yeah kind of I think that's proof. the important thing, isn't it? It's the other parts of the brain are actually able to to morph, if you like, into the taking over the function of the dead cells.
1: yeah, in these cases yes
0: and and um, connect the, up with all the other things that that do that movement. It's like yeah. bypassing the dead bit.
1: Yes, indeed they do bypass
0: mm it's a, it's a traffic accident and and they go around. They find exactly. ways around. That's a good metaphor. Yeah. It's like hearts. They recanalize They're the coronary arteries around a blockage. And in fact, you don't necessarily die better. from it. It's just a, if it happens suddenly, you're in trouble.
1: <laughs> yes, and mm. the same with the brain. In other, um, well, in other words, it, it, not every stroke is curable. For instance, if you have a, a stroke in your brain mm. stem, mm. the part that regulates your breathing, mm. you will not live long enough to do brain exercises. It's possible that a stroke interferes with the part of the brain involved in motivation, so you won't have the motivation to do it.
0: Ah, yes. Um, Okay.
1: Or the area that governs attention. Although there are people like Ian Robertson in Trinity College Dublin and others throughout the world who are working on this very difficult problem of Mm.
0: attention Mm. in
1: stroke victims, but also we're interested, obviously, in seeing if attention can be trained in uh, children with attention deficit disorders and so on. So. And they're, they're they're making some progress. So I'm not saying every stroke is is treatable, but this commonest kind of stroke turns out to be treatable, and even speech can be brought back using similar principles.
0: Mm. It would seem to me that what you put your attention on is terribly important.
1: Yeah, it's it is it, it, you know in a way, <laughs> the question of attention is is something we haven't paid attention enough attention.
0: No. I mean, I'm
1: not talking about attention deficit, but no, no. it's really a very, very complicated thing. But yes. it, it it drives plastic change in the brain. Um, so we're very, very interested in it. The thing, just a few words about it. Babies are born with their attentional system button turned in the in the on position. Mm. So there, if you watch a young baby once it's awake, it's attending to everything you do. Mm. And it's making new connections and forming its brain maps in what we call the critical period of plasticity. Hmm. It's very, very plastic because its attentional system is turned on and you, the baby sees something and the brain says, save that one, and, it, it, save, that one, and save that one, and save that one too. Hmm. And once the brain map is formed and consolidated, then your attention system can be in either the on position or off position. Uh-huh. That's what most adults are like. And we can turn our attentional system on, but we really have to make a mental effort to pay attention.
0: Mm. Particularly and if it, if your arm's not working and the other one's in a sling. I can imagine yeah. that would be very frustrating, and part of it would be encouragement, yeah?
1: Yes, well, yes, that's very helpful. because mm. this, Because the training is incremental, the person doing the training cannot see the benefits of it. Mm-hmm. Um, unless they have someone who knows. Mm, things. Exactly. So you just keep doing this and it'll come through.
0: Yeah.
1: And so you can also see that because we didn't see that, that we're all like that person with the stroke in, in, in this sense. Mm. Because plastic change in general, structural change in the brain in general is incremental. Yes. We often miss the fact that our brains are plastic because we couldn't really see it, so we didn't stick to certain things long enough to get the benefits. Ah. But now, um, in the book, I provide many, many models of people who did things that they never dreamed were possible um, by understanding that the plasticity is incremental.
0: But we can use that in life in general. We don't need to wait for the stroke, yeah?
1: Most definitely. I mean, we can can use it, first of all, in understanding... Well, look, look, let's look at development. You know, most people, when you say, you know... To them, oh, I'm studying um, the psychology of development. Think that you're studying the psychology of children's development or young people's development because our view was after, you know, it, it kept changing and creeping up, but after childhood, brain development stopped, and therefore, as you got older, you didn't develop so much as you deteriorated. And adult, even if you looked at categories of adult development, they were usually describing things like, um, growing resigned to the fact that you're mortal, I mean, and growing wise about human mortality and morbidity. In other words, we didn't really develop so much as we accommodated with great d- despair to our limitedness. Now, no, I was just going to say, we started
0: paying attention to our death. <laughs>
1: yeah, mm. and of course we die. Uh, no, of I'm course, the cells that. just
0: respond, they don't care. Yeah, The biology just but responds, It's not. it's not particular. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but what I'm saying is that, in fact, adult development is possible. Yes. It has a different characteristic. If you put
0: your attention on it, of course. Yeah. You put your attention and on so your potential, yeah? Yep. Yeah.
1: And, and there are many, many things that we thought we couldn't do mm-hmm. in the second part of life that it turns out we actually can do. Mm. That's very, very exciting.
0: Very promising. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reed, and I'm discussing neuroplasticity with Dr. Norman Deutsch. Have you looked at this in people with of course the you know, I have to ask this question, I am sorry, but I have to Alzheimer's and dementia
1: Well, um, that's in a bit of a different category at this point, you mm-hmm. know but what I describe as age-related cognitive decline mm. is what happens to any human brain in most modern cultures because once we hit middle age, we just replay mastered skills we don't turn the attentional system on nearly enough. Mm. or nearly frequently enough. Mm. So what I'm describing is um, something that uh, you might say is a disorder of improper use of the brain. Alzheimer's is a disease of the brain, right? and we don't have evidence at this point. It's very, very complicated, we don't mm. we haven't settled the question as to whether brain exercises can prevent alzheimer's here's mm-hmm. here's some of the things that we know. we know that if you look at people you know roughly ten twenty years before they get alzheimer's uh, you, you know you looked at a hundred people you would find that those who went on not to get alzheimer's had more education and were more mentally active and more social mm. in you know, 10 years before the Alzheimer's struck. But we don't know if the re. A- a- we don't know uh, what's, what that means. That could mean mm-hmm. that those people just didn't have Alzheimer's and their peers had a subclinical kind of Alzheimer's and that's why they were mentally less active. Or whether that mental activity is protective. Now, there is a concept in Alzheimer's research called cognitive reserve. Because we know that people with higher education do tend to get lower rates of Alzheimer's. We think that they've formed so many connections in their brains that once they start to get it, it's just clinically not as terrible or they have a kind of um, lead time before it gets really, really terrible. Mm. So there is something to cognitive reserve, but we haven't yet sorted out whether these brain exercises can stall Alzheimer's or not. Now, there's incredible research that's being done at the Howard Florey Institute in Melbourne, Australia, um, that looks at an illness called Huntington's disease, which is a genetic illness. In other words, if you've got the gene, it was believed that you had a 100% chance of getting this illness, which included a movement disorder, a dementia-like picture, in other words, deterioration of cognitive function, and depression. And they've taken the gene for this, and they've put it into mice, and they've put mice on running wheels so that they get a, and end in very stimulating environment, so the equivalent of a, a mouse playhouse or mouse university, if you will, mm-hmm. with lots of labyrinths and fun mouse toys. And what they found is that if they compare the mice in the stimulating environment to mice raised in the typical mm-hmm. lab environment, mm-hmm. it delays the onset of the Huntington's illness. Mm. By This is a very rough approximation. Um, by approximately, if you were to extrapolate mouse years to human years by about twenty years, so here's a case where exercise yeah. and cognitive stimulation is revert you know seems to be having a, a very positive impact. We mm-hmm. know that lots of uh, exercise and by exercise here we're talking about mice on running wheels, which is the human equivalent of walking, not running because right. there's no resistance on a running wheel, so just mice that do lots and lots of walking. Develop new brain cells. This is a very recent discovery and a very important Mm -hmm. one in the hippocampus, which is Mm -hmm. a part of the brain that turns short-term memories into long. But if it's stopping or delaying the onset of a dementia, this is obviously doing other things that are very positive. Mm -hmm. So it's good for every, almost every adult in our culture will get age-related cognitive decline, which Mm -hmm. is not all. And the shocking statistic is that if you live to 85 you know over 40 percent of people will Mm. start to get some dementia so Mm. since everybody would benefit from exercises because we're all going to get age-related cognitive
0: and benefit greatly by the information that's in your wonderful book i think that's probably the best place isn't it for people to look for specific information about what we've discussed
1: well it. (laughs) I hope it's a good place for them to look.
0: And, and so that, an that book, The book. Brain That Changes Itself, by Dr. Norman Doidge, is available generally in Australia, distributed yep. widely. That's by Scribe. Mm-hmm. And do you have a website that people can refer to?
1: Sure. I mean, I think if they put The Brain That Changes Itself, they'll actually get to my website very quickly. Okay,
0: fantastic. And
1: my name is Norman Doidge, and it's normandoidge.com, spelled like Dodge with an I.
0: Right, fantastic. And if people, you know, want to contact you through the website, is that possible? Or do you have in the book a list of the various organizations that you've referred to in this interview?
1: Well, it's in much more detail in the book. I have some links on my website. I'm inundated with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of emails. I can't answer them all. It's just not humanly possible. Uh Um, But I've put many of the commonly asked questions
0: mm-hmm. on
1: to the FAQ section of the website.
0: Fantastic. So that would be the best place for people to visit. There must have been a decision at some stage in your life that the mind is absolutely fantastic and people should know about this.
1: Uh, it always just seemed self-evident to me <laughs> 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 that the mind was very, very interesting uh, to understand.
0: Me uh, too. And incredibly important to health. So I thank you very much for your contribution. It's incredible, the wealth and depth of knowledge that you've uh, allowed all of us to experience. I have much gratitude for.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reed, and I've been speaking with the very brilliant Dr. Norman Doidge, the author of the book, The Brain That Changes Itself, a fascinating look at neuroplasticity, where we're up to now and possibilities for the future. From all of us here at Wellbeing, we'd like to say we wish you well.